welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, friends. Happy Memorial Day. You look really glad to be here. <laughs> uh, my name is Micah. I am one of the pastors here this morning, and we often, if not always, uh, or at least in the last uh, bit of time, begin our gathering with a call to worship, um, which is, a, is a, a, an opportunity for us to kind of take a deep breath, um, pay attention to why we're here, and what we intend, what we hope for. Um, and so I actually want to begin this morning with a question. It comes from a story uh, this last weekend. Um, this guy named Dallas Willard, who is a theologian, and he was once asked, what's the most important thing Jesus ever said? That's an interesting question. What's the most important thing Jesus ever said? And his response to that question was, follow me. And then he leaned over a podium and he said, what's your plan for that? If that's the most important thing Jesus ever said, what's your plan to do that? Because we don't do anything without intention, right? So this first song we're going to sing this morning is uh, a song about Jesus and the things that Jesus is and, uh, and was and um, how he presents himself to us. And so even as we join our voices this morning and sing that, I'd uh, love to let that question linger. If follow me is the most important thing he ever said, what's your plan for that? So let's join our voices this morning, if you would. Uh, please stand and let's sing together. Okie dokie. Enough goofing around here. Um, well, I got a sermon to preach, so let's do that. How about it, eh? I, I hung out with some Canadians this weekend, so they're always so fun, you know? I love their process. <laughs> you know, if you've been to Canada, uh, my name's Micah. Welcome to you. If you're new around here, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, we'd love to know that you were here. So in the seat pockets in front of you, or you can go to our website, awakenwest7th.com. There's a little I'm new button. If you fill that out, somebody from our team will reach out and invite you to a beverage of your choice. You can get to know us a little. We'd love to get to know you. Also, uh, if you have tithes or offerings for uh, Awaken, we're so grateful for that and your support, as always. Uh, there's a number of ways you can give online. Uh, as noted behind me, but you can also give uh, in the black boxes at each of the exits. You can put those cards in there as well. A couple things we want to let you know about that are happening in the life of the church. Uh, the first of which is uh, a book study on, I think it, the title is Origins, or uh, yes, which is a collection of poems and essays in partnership with our friends at Art House. Um, if you're interested in that, it'll meet monthly, May 31st, and if you can sign up ASAP, that would be great. Um, Vanessa Lucius is our contact for that, who's right down here in the front. Kids picked their seats this morning, so, you know, sometimes you just got to go where they go. Um, there is a queer community lunch this afternoon, so uh, that's at A-Side, just right behind the church uh, in the old firehouse there after the gathering, so you can join for that. There is an artist mingle happening. We do that monthly. Uh, June 1st is the next one, so Mel typically leads those if you're interested. More information is online and in the Awaken Weekly. And last but not least, next Sunday is our annual meeting as a church, so June the 4th. 
A uh, couple things related to that. If you're planning on making it uh, and you'll be there for lunch, if you could please register so we know to buy food for you, that would be super helpful. If you are not planning on joining us for the annual meeting for whatever reason and you could possibly come to the 9 o'clock gathering, that would be helpful because we have a sneaky suspicion that everybody and all their kids are coming at 10.30 next week. So if you're not planning on coming and you could shift, that would be super helpful for that. But um, that's after the gathering. We'll have lunch and then the meeting will happen right up here. Um, let's go, people. We're going to continue our series called Iterations, and this is week seven of that series. We've been looking at the different iterations of God's people in Scripture. So it's my contention that there's always a group of people that God's working with and through in the Bible. And wherever you pick up the Bible, you can find an iteration of that. And it looks different based on context and history and what's happening in the world and what's happening in the hearts of God's people. But God's always promising their presence to God's people. God's always inviting them to do something and be something in the world. Um, and so we've been looking at, um, from the very beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden, and Abram and Sarai, who become the nation of Israel. We looked at the call of Jacob and the wrestling of Jacob with the angel. Uh, he, of course, has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. We looked at uh, the, the people who then get find their way into Egypt and call out to God in the beginning of the Exodus story. And God hears them and sees them, remembers them, knows them by name. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the pillar of cloud and fire that the Israelites are led by in the wilderness. Last week, we looked at the judges, this group of people uh, who, who show up on behalf of God uh, and lead the people for a period of time. This week, we turn our attention to uh, the period after the judges when the Israelites ask for a king. Um, do you guys remember checkers? Did anybody ever play checkers before? You know, it's the origin of buffalo plaid, I'm convinced. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, in checkers, you get, it's one-dimensional, and you can move diagonally, unless you get to the other side of the board, at which point you say, king me. That's exactly right. Thanks for the enthusiasm, Jen. I appreciate that. What's that? Oh, black sheep. That's for black sheep? I didn't even know that. It's been a long time. So king me, you can say that king me, which is basically when like a, 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 a piece on the board takes a completely different role and you give them authority and they can do things that you couldn't do before. King me. So we're getting to this portion of this iteration of God's people where they essentially say king me. We want a king. So that's in, we find that in the book of Samuel, Jeremiah, if you would. Uh, we'll be reading our text this morning. So I'd invite you to stand in body or in spirit. First Samuel chapter 8. A great story. I wish we could give commentary, but we're just going to read it, right? I mean. <laughs> First Samuel chapter 8. Here we go. Here's the heading. Someone worked on this heading, and we never read the headings. Israel asks for a king. Here we go. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his sons, his firstborn, was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. 
It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and his attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us, then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. <laughs> Man, <laughs> pray with me. God, uh, what a story. I mean, it seems so far away from our life. <clears throat> um, yeah, so I pray today that as we um, take time out of our, our, the busyness of our life and set it aside to be together, um, to be in worship, um, to listen and turn our ear, tune our hearts to your voice. I pray that by your mercy and your grace, we might find a way forward that looks different than this one. And when we don't, we're so grateful that you never leave. You somehow find it in yourself to be steadfast and faithful. So we thank you for that. We pray for uh, your spirit's presence in this time and in our lives. In Christ's name, by the power of the spirit, the church said together, amen, amen. You may be seated. I feel a little vindicated here, by the way. The story I told last week about my kids in their shoes, you know, God's kind of like, I told you what's going to happen, and I will not answer you when you call. <laughs> but we, we know that, of course, God does, so that takes me out of the category of being like God, so okay. Um, so, 
just a reminder, like to set the stage, um, the people have been through a, hundred, a few hundred years of judges where they call out to the Lord and the Lord responds and sends a judge and that judge comes and, and restores, redeems, liberates them in some cases. And uh, the story of judges often says like, and the land rested for 40 years or the land rested for 80 years and even longer at times. So there was this period of time where there was peace and um, settledness in the land and yet they would find themselves in the place that they often did over and over again. And so uh, inevitably... Uh, people would forget or a new generation would come of age and they would make the same mistakes of their parents and their grandparents and they would find themselves where they started, right? And so Samuel has taken over for a man named Eli. Eli was the high priest of Israel. Samuel becomes the next high priest and um, is effectively the leader of Israel, the spiritual leader of Israel. And so um, Samuel is getting to the end of his life and he appoints his sons, which we were joking about earlier. It's like, that is like nepotism, right? And it didn't work out. Wow, that's surprising, you know? Like, has anyone seen Succession, the show? <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, uh, and yet, uh, and so the people come and have this kind, compassionate meeting with Samuel where they begin with, you are old, <laughs> and you need to be replaced, and we don't trust your kids. And so they say, we want a king. Give us a king. Um, Effectively saying, right, the pieces on the board that we have been playing with, we want to change how they work. We want to give some authority to certain people or a certain person. We want a king. We look at all the nations around us, and everybody else has a king. You know, the Joneses and the Smiths and the Johnsons. and the, They've all got kings, and so we want a king. And they even say, right, that they will be able to lead us out and, and go out before us and fight our battles. It's fitting. It says a lot. Um, I watched the Air Jordan movie the other night. Any of you seen this yet? I think if Ben Affleck and Matt Damon partner on anything, it's worth watching. Okay, Just a rule of film in our day. Um, it's the story of, of uh, how we came to have Air Jordans in our world. And it's phenomenal. Great film. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but it got me thinking about Air Jordans. And I was one of my kids was like, did you ever have Jordans, Dad? And I was like, you know, now that you think about now that you mention it, no. I've never owned a pair of Air Jordans in 46 years of my life. And I, but I remember in seventh grade so badly wanting Air Jordans, like so badly. And they were very expensive back then. They're even more expensive now. Um, and so we would get, you know, the stride right version of the Air Jordan. Do you know what I'm saying? Which, you know, they, they crack, you know, you get the cracks in them. They don't just crease like real leather creases, but plastic cracks, you know. There's a stride right version of Jordans, and, and I wanted them so badly, right, so that I could be like all the other kids in my seventh grade class. I'm curious, what, what are the things that you wanted so that you could be like all the other nations, you know, so that you could be like all of your neighbors or your friends? Were there things in your life that you wanted so that you could be like everybody else? Like, name them. Yell them out. This is an all-play question. Gas jeans. Yes! I have a great story about that. Parachute pants. Parachute pants. There we go. Abercrombie Zubas. I am so sorry <laughs> that that was, the t that was the top for you, you know. <laughs> was that Nate Cousins? That, was that you that said it? No, okay. I, I see you. I was like, that, that's fitting. That's fitting. That's Josh. Okay. All right. Zubas. What else? What else? Anything from Aeropostale. Yes. Just say it again. Frosted tips. <laughs> Okay, 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 honestly, honesty, we're in church today, 
Any of the, uh, anybody who had frosted tips in their life, raise your hand, please. Show of hands. Yes, yes. We had a, I actually had a conversation about this. You know, you can either put the cap on and pull the, pull the hair through, or just like, you know, bleed, which effectively bleaches it, yeah. I did the whole cap thing as a youth pastor, kids in my youth group, like in my office, pulling my hair through the cap. That was a really dark day. It's a dark era. It's a dark era, don't you think? You know, skillet. It's like, wow. Not Skrillex, but skillet. Oh, my gosh. This has gone off the rails really fast. But we have this ingrown desire, don't we, to, to look outside of ourselves for affirmation. We seek from outside of ourselves these words of affirmation about who we are. And we look for, we desperately seek them, right, external, which at the end of the day is a giant exercise in the pursuit of the false self. There is an essence of about you, a true core that is true, that is real. And, and yet we go around in all these different places and we joke about Jordans and Zubas and whatnot, but there is something connected to that, as silly as it is, to this pursuit of external voices declaring something about us that then position us or posture us in the social landscape or in the financial landscape or in our cultural world. I'll share more about this at the end, but I was with some, some guys this weekend, and uh, our elder, his name was Bart Tarman, he was talking about uh, what is home. And in particular for us, it was a group of men and he said, home is the truest sense of who you are, and this is the you that God relates to. Let me say that again. Home is the truest sense of who you are, and this is who the you that God relates to, that God longs to relate to, which is to say... To the degree that you can understand and know your true self is the degree to which you can have a true and authentic relationship with God. Because that's the you that God desires to relate to. And so insofar as we pursue this other version of ourself, our false selves, it's problematic in our relationship with the divine. Because that's the you that God desires to relate to. So I want to make two observations this morning from this passage from Samuel, this iteration of God's people King me. We want a king. And the first is this. I want to I highlight the fact that in this passage, we see God accommodating humans in the Bible. Throughout Scripture, we find God accommodating humans, God acquiescing to what humans want, even though it may not necessarily be what God wants. For example, the sacrificial system in the Bible. Leviticus 1 to 17 is a very long and drawn out and sophisticated and, and uh, particular and specific rules and regulations and instructions about how the Israelites are to offer sacrifice in the temple. And there are other places in scripture that, that mention this as well. This is sort of the biggest chunk. And if you didn't know any better after reading this, you would think, oh, I guess this is what God is like. I guess this is what God wants. Blood sacrifice. But then you read a chapter like Isaiah 1, and you hear, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? 
I have more than enough burnt offerings, rams, fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come and appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing your meaningless offerings. So you have this long section of scripture which says do all of these things and then you have Isaiah the prophet on behalf of the Lord saying I don't need your blood. I don't want these blood offerings. So I want to suggest that God doesn't and didn't need bloodshed in order to forgive sin. Are you listening to me right now? <laughs> I want to suggest that God doesn't and didn't need blood to be shed in order to forgive sin. So why is the system installed in Leviticus? I want to suggest because that's what the people needed. That's what we needed. And God meets us where we are. God accommodated humanity. If you study the ancient world and ancient culture, you will find, especially religious ancient culture, what you will find is that there is a a practice, a cultural reality where in order to relate to and have relationship with and appease the gods, blood sacrifice was totally, completely normal. And so God enters into this world and, and what the fascinating study is, how is the Levitical system of the Bible different from the ancient practice of animal sacrifice? That is the interesting question. But you could read this and think that God needs blood in order to forgive sin. And then you connect that to Jesus and the whole thing makes sense. But I want to suggest that actually God accommodates. God comes into our world and meets us where we are. And so if God were going to do that 6,000 years ago in an ancient world where this was normal, how else would God appear? arrive, relate, than this. Than to say, oh, this is what you knew. This, and, and the psychology of this has been written about ad nauseum, right? The psychology of religion and guilt and shame and scapegoating. And so God comes in and says, okay, I see what's happening here. Let's actually point this in a different trajectory. And then we're going to take it to its completion where there will be one final sacrifice so we don't have to do this anymore. So you don't have to do this anymore. So you don't think you have to do this anymore. That's a fascinating Easter sermon. It's not Easter, Micah. Come on. So, why does this matter? And I'm going to say this slowly, and I'm going to repeat it. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it reflects the heart of God. Just because it's in the Bible, that doesn't automatically mean, that doesn't equal, this is what God is like. And for any of you who have ever found a passage and you've read it and you've thought to yourself, God can't be like that. I want to say God isn't. That's a, that's a possibility that you can entertain. There are all kinds of things in, in the Bible that are not synonymous with the heart of God. And that I, even I would go as far as to say don't reflect the heart of God. The only thing that is 100% connected to and representative of God's heart is, of course, Jesus. Hebrews says he is the direct, the exact representation, the icon of the divine. So if you want to know what God is like, the Bible has to answer to Jesus. Jesus doesn't answer to the Bible. 
Man, we're going there. Okay? So then you get into the difficulty of like, well, how do we know what Jesus is like since he's not here anymore? And then we have a talk about the, the spirit of God and where the spirit leads and how we understand that and interpret it and hold it with scripture. But Jesus doesn't answer to the Bible. John says that the word of God is Christ, the Christ, the eternal Christ who becomes human and takes up residence among us, tabernacles among us. So the Bible bears witness to and attests to Jesus, the Christ. But Jesus doesn't answer to the Bible. It's the other way around. So, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it reflects the heart of God. Now, connected to this accommodation of God that we see in Scripture, in our case, with the words of the people, they say, we want a king, king me. It's important to see that God honors their choice. God honors honors their choice and their will, their desire, their freedom to choose. We've talked about this before, and I'll say it again because it's that important. God is love, according to 1 John. And God is love, and love requires choice. Therefore, if God is love, God has to, God's bound to in some way. God binds themselves to this because love is choice. And so if we choose, God honors that. And we see it over and over and over in Scripture, where God Try, like tries to persuade, attempts to lead them in a different direction. Go this way, not that way. But in the end, after if you try hard enough, you can get what you want. And this is what we see in the story of the kings. We get what we want. And in this case, they want a king, and God gives them a king. Not because it's God's desire, not because it's God's plan. God tries to warn them, but he, God honors their choice because God is love and love requires choice. Now, one more string to pull on in this God accommodating the people umbrella. And this is a phenomenon that we would be wise to pay attention to. In Star Wars, Trevor, how you doing? In Star Wars, there's a character named Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? He's the OG, the original gangster of uh, the, rebel, or the, the, the Jedi Force. And at one point, he's talking to Anakin, who becomes Darth Vader. Sorry to spoil it for you. (laughs) And he says, you have become the evil you swore to destroy. There is a pattern among human anthropology and history where individuals, communities, and people groups become the very thing they opposed. You see it in Scripture, right? The Israelites are liberated from Egypt and from Pharaoh. They are set free from slavery, from being under the oppressive regime of power wielded in an ungodly way. And it takes like a couple of generations uh, uh, until we get Solomon. And in uh, 1 Kings 9, 10, and 11, we hear the account of what the king of Israel had become. And if you read those three chapters, you, would, you, you could just insert Pharaoh and Egypt, and it's no different. He has amassed more wealth than anybody else. He has built temples and buildings on the backs of slaves. He has chariots and weapons of war, and he's married the Pharaoh's daughter, <laughs> along with a whole bunch of other daughters of ruling uh, empires, neighboring empires, in order to have political alliances. It's not a bad strategy back then, but it was one that was definitely frowned upon according to the divine word, Yahweh's command. So they literally become the thing they were liberated from. 
You have become the evil you swore to destroy. How about the American revolutionaries, right? This group of people who leave a place where they're being oppressed, where there's a, 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 an empire that dictates and has power and, and control of land and resource, and they leave that place to come to a new land where there's freedom and there's places to like make a family and to grow business and wealth. And that coupled with this myth of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism, that there's a group of people who are better than everybody else, they, that becomes the fuel for the extortion of, the oppression of indigenous people and African bodies. We've become the thing we've opposed. There's a, a, a podcast some of you have listened to maybe that I've now listened to three times. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it, shares, it tells the story of a group of people who become the very thing that they opposed. A plurality of elders, one pastor, one voice, and by the end it was, a, it was like power on a, on a mountain with very few people dictating who and what and when. We become the very thing that we oppose. And I want to just say, friends, what's dangerous is when we get to the place where we think that couldn't be me. Or it couldn't be us. That's the dangerous place. That's when we've become blind to this reality that has befallen humanity so many times over and over and over again. So to think that couldn't be us is so arrogant and foolish. Which leads me to a second observation I want to make from this passage, right? We have to ask this question. God accommodates the people. They ask for a king, and God gives them one. And they find that this, this, they become the very thing that they oppose, right? Like, we have to ask the question, why does this keep happening? Why is it that humans often and inevitably become the thing they swore to destroy? And this question haunts me. It's why I've listened to this podcast multiple times. Because it is a giant, war- like, blinking warning sign to me as a spiritual leader. It can be and it could be you. So don't think it can't be or it won't be. And I, I don't know the answer or the answers to this question, but I think part of it is in this phrase, we want a king. How, why is it that we keep going here? That we keep coming to this place as humans in our, in our history I think part of it is this, this phrase, we want a king. And so for the next few minutes, I want to I invite you to expand the category. King is, the, is what the, the word used here, because this is the, the world that they would have lived in, right? Very imperial, very king and, and, and empire, right? And, and sometimes queens. But I want to invite you to expand it, because uh, this is about, we want a leader. We want a queen, we want a princess, we want a president, we want someone with power, we want someone we can put on a pedestal. And I think that whatever drove the Israelites to say we want a king, we are still saying today. August 31st, 1997, does anyone remember what happened on that day? August 31st, 1997, Princess Diana died. Do you remember what happened after that? For those of you that were too young. (laughs) I'm going to be able to start saying that now. Getting older. There was an absolute, like, ridiculous outpouring of people. Throngs, miles and miles and miles outside of Buckingham Palace. People who had deep relationships with Diana. No, they did not. 
they came because they were compelled because they felt some deep connection to this person who was who no one could actually ever become right a part of the, the, the monarchy beautiful beyond beautiful September 5th, 1997, five days later, do you know who died? Mother Teresa. Do you want to know what happened when she died? Not much. Nobody cared. I mean, there was a few people who knew the, the value of that life. But do you, see, do you see what happened? We want a king. We want a princess. We want someone that we can create an illusion of a person that becomes this thing we aspire to that we actually can't attain. Why do we do that? And I'm not a psychologist. I don't claim to be one. But I've been thinking about this for the last few days. And I want to offer just a couple of my thoughts. You can totally disagree with me. And I may, in fact, be wrong. But I wonder if we're afraid. I wonder if we're not afraid. And having a person who we believe to be powerful enough and strong enough and smart enough and capable enough doesn't assuage some of our fear. I wonder if we have like a low-grade anxiety about the world that we live in and the questions that are unanswered and the uncertainty that we go to bed at night with. And so we, we want a king, a queen, a leader, a pastor who knows the answer and has the power and I wonder if that doesn't assuage some of our anxiety so we can sleep better at night. Kierkegaard called anxiety the sickness unto death. I wonder if we actually would rather abdicate our responsibility and power to someone else because that's just too scary to hold. And so we give it to someone. We want a king, we want a queen, we want a pastor, we want a leader, we want a president. So that when and if something does go wrong, there's a real easy answer. Biden, the Democrats, Trump, the Republicans, or whoever. I wonder if we want to worship something that we can see. So when we can't see God, we construct something in place of God and we say we want a king. And this is an impulse that gets us into very deep trouble all throughout the course of human history. It gets Israel in trouble, and I don't think we're immune to it as a church. And so I want to tell you today, I don't want to be your king. I don't know if any of you want me to be your king, but I don't want to be your king. And Jenna doesn't want to be your queen. I want to close this morning by just giving you an update on some work, something that I'm doing in my life and in my work that I think actively works against and opposes this impulse that we see in this passage of we want a king in an effort to be transparent and to kind of let you in in some ways to, to my journey. And so uh, I just returned back from a retreat with 12 men, uh, a program that I've been accepted to participate in called the Journey Home. And the journey home is an intimate cohort of dominant culture male faith leaders who are seeking wholeness and peace in their identity, vocation, and leadership. We're trusting as a cohort that tending to this deep internal work will directly impact how we embody equity, justice, and peace in our unique context of leadership. And so we're creating space to evaluate our first half of life's pursuit 
and our success and discern how our second half of life might guide us down the path of descent. Um, Each time we meet, and this is a six-month journey that has begun and will end, actually, I'm going back to the Camino, ironically enough, on a pilgrimage with these men in October. And when we gather, we start with this mantra. And at the end of each session, we say it again. Because it's a, a, an agreement that we make together as a learning community. And I want to I walk through it as we close this morning. Because again, I think it, it, it opposes this, this uh, posture and um, what we see in this passage. It says, as a learning community, we embrace a pilgrimage from certainty to mystery. So all of you who have been formed by institutions of certainty, seminary, pastors, we embrace a pilgrimage of, from certainty to mystery together. We journey from our false selves to our true nature as ones who are deeply loved. Questioning the legitimacy of perpetual ascent, we find the path of descent is the only way up. From a life of doing to one of being and becoming. We exchange defensive masculinity for extravagant tenderness. Can you imagine what the world would be like if the men in your life learned how to do that? How the world would be different? We exchange defensive masculinity for extravagant tenderness and relinquish positional power in pursuit of just influence. It's not that we don't want to change the world. It's not that we don't want to matter. It's not that we don't want to use ourselves and our gifts for the work of God in the world, but we want to do it from from a different paradigm where it's not extortion and coercion and dominance, but influence. We exchange dominance for collaboration Domination for collaboration and self-protection for a community of universal love. And rather than avoiding our pain, we choose to move toward it as an embrace of our humanity. Rather than seek certainty and control, we bask in the mysterious truth of paradox. And as we journey towards Santiago, we seek the home that is our heart. In this iteration, we see a group of people who want a king. And God honors their choice because love requires choice. So let us not fall prey to this predictable phenomenon of making kings and queens and putting people on pedestals. But live our lives. Claim the power that you have in your own story and your own life and your own gifts. Be responsible for them. Use them in the world for just influence and not domination and power let's lean into our fears and anxieties and our hurts because what we don't transform we transmit men in the room what we don't transform we transmit to those around us it's about as certain as the sunrise tomorrow and let's expose our false selves the ways in which we ask others to tell us who we are are not accurate or true. Sometimes they are shades of truth, right? We have people who reflect back to us the things that are true about us, but often we seek 
a different story and a different narrative. So that we can know the truest sense of who we are, which is the, the you God desires to relate to. That's a little bit about what I'm up to. And um, I'd invite you to join me in some ways in that work. Because I think it, 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 the fruit that it will bear in our world will be more beautiful and more constructive and more life-giving than some of the other fruit if we don't. So this is a bit of a warning sermon. Let me offer a word of prayer, and we'll make our way to the table. God, as we gather this morning, we do so with sober hearts and minds. As we, as we hear a story about a group of people who, who desire predictable things that have predictable outcomes, we say out loud as much as we can that we, we want to we be different. We desire to be different. We, we know that on our own, that's not likely to happen. So, Holy Spirit, embody us, transform us, like live within us so that we might become the people that you, Jesus, have called us to be. So whatever work is for us this morning, we give you space now, Holy Spirit, to speak and do what you so desperately want to do. As we close this morning, we want to make our way to the table. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood, which, is, which will be shed for you. Whenever you eat and drink of these things, do it in remembrance of me. And so as you make your way to the table this morning, know that this is the table of the Lord. It's not the churches. I don't own it. We don't own it. It's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you have a lot of faith or a little bit of faith or not much faith at all. You who have been here often or maybe not for a long time or ever before. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come, be filled. In just a moment, we'll invite you to make your way down the side aisles. You'll be invited to grab a piece of bread and dip it in a cup. There's red wine and there's white grape juice. And you'll hear those words, the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. To the church gathered this morning, may you go with this blessing into today and this week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church said together, amen. Grace and peace, friends. Enjoy the weekend. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.